Well, good morning. It's great to be worshiping together today, especially the light that is dawned upon the world. You know, light has always been central to our celebration at Christmas. Um, Marilyn and I now are in a new dimension of that because we live two blocks north of uh, Bellevue Square. So this time of the year, we get to driving home from from picking her up at work and it's evening time and we can glance to the left and we get to view the uh, fabulous lighting display that illuminates uh, Snowflake Lane. And, uh, you know, what would Christmas be without Christmas lights? That's part of the grandeur and the glimmer of the season. Now, as we gather in this place and we we go a little deeper and we probe a little further as to what it means to celebrate the message of Christmas, perhaps there's a clue there. Because I've always kind of wondered why it is that Jesus just didn't come into the big city in the middle of the day when he would have maximum exposure to uh, optimum number of people. And instead, he he came to the backside of the planet in the dead of the night. But perhaps there is a clue there because this is the mission of Christmas. The Christ of Christmas steps into the world's darkness to switch on the light. So Christmas is all about light, even at a deeper level. Well, what darkness and what light? Well, Christ comes to step into the darkness of despair to turn on the light of joy. And we'll learn about that this season. He steps into the darkness of our inner conflict to turn on the light of peace. And we will probe further with that this Advent season. He comes into the darkness and turns on the light of, from our guilt to the joy of forgiveness. But fundamentally, Christ comes at Christmas to step into the darkness of meaninglessness. To turn on the light of hope. As Steve has already prepared us for today, we're going to focus on that word, hope. Somebody has said that that hope is the oxygen of the soul. That we just have to breathe it in order to live well. And when you think about it, that's just how we fundamentally are wired. We, we human beings, we cannot help but seek meaning and direction in our lives. We, we long for hope. That sense that that we, despite the fact that much of our lives is, is run in circles and we keep bumping into the same walls, there, there is something moving in a straight line. And we are going somewhere with our lives and, and we can live forward into the future. And it, it, it rises before us and it is beyond and above us. And it even brings meaning to the questions and the problems of our days. Hope is the oxygen of the soul. It is that belief that my, my life has the destination and the destination is worth the journey. That is hope. And we need it. And it is God's great gift through Jesus at Christmas, you know, that's what uh, the Austrian psychiatrist Viktor Frankl struggled with when he when he lived and suffered and labored in the shadow of the, the furnaces that consumed the bodies of his countrymen in Nazi prison camps. And every day he would suffer along with many, many others and see those who would go to the gas chambers and wonder if he was next. And it was a horrible existence. 
And Victor Frankl came to note that there were some people who just just gave up and died short of the gas furnaces. And yet there were others like himself who somehow continued to survive. And he wondered why. And he finally came to the conclusion that the difference was found in this commodity called hope. The belief that somehow, though I may not fully articulate it and understand it, that in the midst of this present darkness, the light will shine. My life does have a purpose. This is all headed somewhere. And I can make plans and take steps every day that cause me to lean forward into that hopeful future. Christ comes at Christmas to offer to you and me to feel that basic hunger of our soul for hope. And enter the Gospel of Isaiah. Becky read from this portion of Isaiah this morning, and we're going to spend a little time in Isaiah together today. And you say, Gospel? I thought Isaiah was an Old Testament book, and the Gospels are all about the New Testament, right? The first four books of the New Testament, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. The word gospel means good news, as we've been taught, and, and they're all about the good news of Jesus, his, his coming, his growing up, his teaching, his living, his dying, his resurrection from the dead. That's the gospel. Well, that's why I want us to look at Isaiah this morning. Seven hundred years before the coming of Christ, we have some of the, the most compelling pictures of the Messiah that are presented in this, this great book. Isaiah had a long ministry. He's considered the greatest of the writing prophets. And he lived several decades either side of 700 B.C. And, and he, he prophesied in a world of darkness that is much like ours, minus the technology. Well, at least the nanotechnology. They had technology. We've always had technology. But, you know, re- remove the uh, Blackberries and the smart bombs and the flat screen TVs. And, and Isaiah lived in our world. And the people were us. And there was darkness and there was danger. As Lord Byron said, in that day it was Assyria that came down like a wolf from the north to devour all in its path. And and uneasy alliances were made and bad and questionable decisions. And Isaiah, as God's spokesman, would say, don't go there or there are consequences. And the planet was filled with people who, who, who gave lip service to God, but, but in their hearts they were forming God's substitutes and following after them and living as if there were no consequences in all of that. And, and Isaiah, Isaiah said there are consequences. But Isaiah, knowing the character of God, peering into the midst of time in the future, even then was seeing the resolute love of God, pursuing his people. And the promise is given in this great book that that there will be a remnant who will respond to his resolute love and repentance and will be restored to relationship with God. And then Isaiah looks even further into history and he sees the coming of the Messiah. The Savior. And Isaiah gives us some of the most beautiful pictures of Christ. And those pictures represent hope at Christmas. The one before you, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the shadow of death. A light has dawned for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given the government will be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Isaiah seven fourteen. therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign 
the virgin will be with child and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Seven hundred years before that child Emmanuel was born. The 11th chapter of Isaiah, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David and the Messiah was to come through the lineage of David. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 40. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lamb in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. And 700 years before the coming of Christ, Isaiah peers further into the mists of time and he sees the Mount Everest of the Old Testament scriptures, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. Surely he took he took up our our, our um, sorrows. He carried them. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all. Like stubborn sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Does the father love us? And if so, how much? Well, the 53rd chapter of Isaiah graphically, compellingly, sacrificially, redemptively for all time answers that question. I look into this passage and I get a glimpse of how dark my sin And great my need for God. How valuable my soul and precious I am to God. How great the cost and how deep the love of the Savior who would give his life that I might have hope. Hope. The oxygen of the soul, which is the great gift of God's love through his son at Christmas. But Isaiah looks a little bit further. He peers deep into the, the mist of time beyond the first coming of Christ, and he comes to the second coming of Christ. And the last act of history is described. He writes, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Won't that be a great day? When you don't live with the regrets and the remorse of the memories that we dredge up from the past, when God eradicates them and says, don't go there anymore. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit before they will call. I will answer while they are still speaking. I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will lie down together. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters that cover the sea. That's the panorama of God's 
merciful medicine, medicine, meddlesome activities in our lives and in history. He has a plan and a purpose. And it will move in the direction of that day when we won't just escape from planet Earth. Nor, as one great world religion says, we just kind of get absorbed into nothingness and we feel no more. And, and in our unique identity, we are no more. But in God's great plan for us, he is preparing a new heaven and a new earth. The cosmos will be restored and redeemed. And we will live there with great creativity and, and free of sorrow and pain. And we will fulfill the labors the Father has for us under his governance. And the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord. Now step back and take a look at God's panoramic picture of hope, of his vision for us in time and in all eternity Jesus, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, because the father knows who we are and how much we need that. And we are valuable enough to him that he offers it and that this Messiah will come and that he is pointed toward a future hope in which God will make all things new. Now, that's hope. That's a setting in which to live these days of your lives. But, of course, there's a key question. If all of that is true, how do I live today, especially at the points of my frustrations, my failures and my fears? What difference does it make how I live today if the future is in the hands of God? Scott and I, uh, I know for years, have both uh, subscribed to a magazine called Leadership. I think I'm a charter member. Uh, are you also? There we are. Both of us. Specimens of age, I guess. If you go back and say you subscribe to that magazine, Eric, from the first day back in the 1981, I think. But one of the things I love about this magazine, and I keep subscribing, is not only it gives great little leadership uh, tips and counsel, but they do interviews. And I love to hear about people's lives. And I remember just a few years ago, they did an interview with uh, one Craig Barnes. And uh, at that time, Craig Barnes was the pastor of the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. He also was battling cancer. And the whole point of the interview was to say, here you are in a historic church in a city of power where it is a real challenge to provide leadership there. And pastoral needs are huge. And you yourself are battling your own mortality, your cancer. Uh, How do you live in the midst of your frustrations and your limitations? And Craig Barnes was very confessional in his response. And he he didn't tell us so much about leadership. He just told us about his life. And he said, you know, I've always been over my head. I came to this church and I'm in over my head. I came to the city of power and I'm in over my head. I face my own mortality as I'm being treated for cancer. And I know I'm in over my head. And I look back on my life and I realize in my entire life I've been in over my head. And then in the midst of it, God has been preparing me for this present darkness. And he went back to the most heartbreaking moment of his life when he was a teenager growing up in a home in upstate New York, an outwardly religious home, but a very severe kind of outwardly religious home. And 
And there were some really deep dysfunctions in that home. And when Craig was in high school and his brother was entering college, that home fell apart. And he came home from school one day to realize that his mom had left and she would never come back to that home. She was divorcing his dad. And, of course, uh, if you've been a child of divorce, you think of the anger that comes into your 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 heart at the same time that the grief comes in and you you're mad at the parents, but you're also wondering what's wrong with you, that they would leave you in your home. And and uh, they were just beginning to wrestle with those feelings when when they received another blow as the father left the home, just dropped out of sight. Craig Barnes at that time, at the time of the interview, said he had no idea where his dad is and whether he's even living or dead, even to that day. And here are two teenage boys. Their home is completely disintegrated and all they have is each other. And his brother comes home from college and he says, well, well, Craig, Craig, I'm dropping out of school and let's you and I both go to work. I'll work all day. You work after school. We're going to get you through high school and then we'll work together to get our college educations. But we're going to stay together, brother. And Craig was having none of that. He was angry. He was hurt. And all he could think about was to leave upstate New York, turn his backside to his problems and go as far west as possible. And so he began hitchhiking his way across country. And somewhere in the upper Midwest, he he ran out of money and he had to stop and get a job. And he found a job in a convenience store and, and a gas station. And, and then he was given free lodging by living over the store as kind of a night watchman. And. And uh, that was his world for a while as he worked to forget. And he made a friendship with a homeless man under a bridge and they would they would talk at odd times during the day because really both of them were homeless. And one day they were having one of these conversations and the homeless man said to Craig, you know, there's really not much difference between you and me. Who knows what he meant by that conversation? Probably a pretty innocuous one. But this young teenager who was angry and bitter and his world was in, in, in shambles, took it deep inward. And he went home that night and fell across his bed. And for the first time since his mom and dad had disappeared from his life, he wept. He had had this hard, bitter shell. But now he wept. The shell had been pierced. And, and once he began weeping, he could not stop weeping. He was sobbing uncontrollably for hours and it really hit rock bottom, but there is an old saying. You familiar with this saying? Sometimes when you hit rock bottom, the rock you strike is the rock of ages. And God was working redemptively in his life, and he began to think about the bright light in the midst of the darkness and dysfunction of his world where he had been introduced to Christ. And he reached for a Bible and he began to try to reacquaint himself with the scriptures. And and he thought about home. It's hard not to think about home when you're in the scriptures, your true home. But he suddenly realized he needed to get back to his brother and he needed to to pick up pieces of his his world and and work through the problems, not run from them with his face pointed toward the hope that he might know in God. And so he went back home and then it was the holidays. And when it's the holidays, you really think of home and you even think about family as dysfunctional as family might be. And so 
he and his brother just had this ache within themselves to spend the holidays with with a parent. Well, they had no idea where their dad was, whether he was living or dead. But they did know that their mom was in Dallas, Texas now. And for the first time, they gave themselves permission to call her and forgive her and ask her if they could come home to her home for Christmas. And there was much weeping. And she said, of course you can, but I have no money. And so they began to hitchhike from upstate New York toward Dallas. And it was winter. And they got somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley. And a snowstorm hit. And it was a sure enough blizzard. Here they were on the side of the road, somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley, two teenage boys thumbing a ride, trying to get to Dallas, Texas. And the cars were getting fewer and fewer. And night had fallen and it was dark. And they didn't know it at the time, but that highway had been closed. And pretty soon there were no cars. So what to do to... Do two teenage boys do in the dead of night, freezing to death on a highway? Well, if you're brothers, you become competitive. And that's how you survive. So they decided they were going to compete. And they were going to pepper one another with questions about baseball because that was a summer game. Maybe they would warm up a little bit. and They both love baseball. So they started firing baseball questions at each other. You know, uh, who pitched the only perfect game in the World Series? Don Larson of the Yankees, 1956 against the Dodgers. He struck out my boyhood hero, Dale Mitchell, to finish the game. He said, who's Dale Mitchell? Um, Who was the last major leaguer to hit 406? Ted Williams, 1941. Who upstaged Ted Williams in 1941? Well, that would be Joe DiMaggio, who hit in 56 straight games. And he was the most valuable player that year. And on and on they went and they ran out of facts and and it was a tie and they're still shivering to death and it's still dark and nobody is coming. What do we compete over now? And then they thought, when we were growing up, dad made us memorize scripture every day. In fact, his rule, the typical hard liner he was was you memorize your scripture, you come to the table and you say it. And if you can't say it, you don't get any supper. Well, they were no lovers of scripture, particularly as little boys, but they did love supper. (laughs) And so apparently they did, you know, love, learn a little bit of scripture. And so here they go competing over memorizing scripture. So the older brother gets to go first, of course. So he got Jesus wept. So, (laughs) So now it's Craig's turn and. Best he can do is a three three worder. God is love. All right now it gets tougher. You know there's no fear in love. Love perfected drives out fear. And suddenly the competition was getting a little more thoughtful as they began to quote these scriptures their dad had made them learn when they were young. And somewhere along the way on that lonely road in the dead of night, freezing to death, one of them remembered Isaiah. And I can't believe they quoted it directly because I can't quote it directly. But it's the 43rd chapter of Isaiah came to mind. And at least they paraphrased it. You remember that one? Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now that beautiful passage really recites the consistency of the character of God in the life of the people he loves. When they needed the Red Sea parted, he parted it. When they needed to cross the Jordan River, he enabled them to cross the Jordan River. And it even anticipates those three children in the furnace whom God protected because there was a fourth one in that furnace who was like the Son of Man. And Craig Barnes in this interview says, you know, at that moment, I was home. In the dead of night, half freezing to death on a lonely road, I was home in the arms of the Savior. It wasn't long before a state trooper came by, picked up the boys, took them to an all-night diner, and a trucker took them in on into Texas. But notice what God did in their lives. If we know God is in control and he has a purpose for our lives. If we know that we are known by name. Our life matters and there is a direction toward which we're headed. Then in the present moment, we know our God is at work and he will redeem that moment. If we lift the folk, our focus from the character of our circumstances to the character of our God. So think for a moment. What is your greatest frustration? What is your most embarrassing failure? What is your most paralyzing fear? What are the questions for which you have no answer right now? What are the ambiguities that you can't straighten out to make sense? Can you look a little higher to the God who is faithful, who knows you by name, who loves you, who has the future in his hand and it is a hopeful future? The destination is worth the journey and who is right now working redemptively in your life. If you will but lift your focus and gaze into the beauty and the majesty of your God. What does it mean to live today in light of a hopeful tomorrow? And what would you do about that beginning today in this Christmas season? A suggestion or two. You know, it might be that this coming week you would make sure as a part of your life, that you warm your heart and your hands at the fireplace of God's love. Read Isaiah 53. How dark my sin. How deep my need. How valuable my soul and precious I am to God. How great the cost. And my Savior would die for me. 
It might be that, you know, we don't do that well. And that's why it's good to sit at the feet of Jesus and do a brief reflective reading of scriptures. Because the scriptures will help you warm your heart and your hands at his love like nothing else. And when we don't have time for that and we race past it, the, the fireplace, out into the cold world, we, our souls freeze to death in the winter of our self-preoccupation. So perhaps a good thing to decide to do would be to stop. Warm your hands and your heart, the fireplace of God's love, as you sit at his feet in Scripture. Are you keeping in mind that, that God is redemptively at work in you today, shaping your character for eternity? When you meet him face to face and the real work and the real living begins and you will do fruitful labor, will your character be developed for God to set you free in his universe under his governance to do creative work to his glory? Can you pray and praise? One more verse from Isaiah, Isaiah 12, 2, that 11th chapter that says that the Messiah is coming, goes on to say that he has the wisdom to govern a new world era, that new heaven and that new earth. And as Isaiah looks at all that, he comes to pray and praise in chapter 12, verse two. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You see, a lot of life is about where you fix your focus and point your mind and direct your attitudes. And perhaps that's part of your to-do list as a result of the, the message of Isaiah this Christmas season.